heard from four companies. We originally had five, but one of the participants was sick and he couldn't travel. So unfortunately he wasn't able to come, but we might talk about that company too. But mostly the broad area here is oral therapies in retina. It's not absolutely new, but it's pretty new. And it's certainly new in the current era. We've been injecting every eye under the sun for the last 20 years. People talk about drops now, oral therapies. I'm fascinated by it because uh, the indications are obvious. You just heard from four great speakers about what the indications might be, and they make a lot of sense. And we have three great experts here who are going to help me to um, explore that. And uh, each of these guys are uh, great clinicians, great clinician scientists, and innovators and entrepreneurs in their own right who have developed products. So maybe each of you guys could introduce yourselves once you start, Paul. Thanks for us. Uh, I'm Paul Carpecki, and it's interesting because I my my main practice is in coronary external disease. But you know, my first love was actually in retina. I did a VA residency, uh, of course, optometric residency in in 1993, and then had a cornea opportunity. But I never lost sight of that. I I did a preceptorship in retina at a top 20 retina practice, Retina Associates of Kentucky, with uh, John Kitchens, Tom Stone, and that group for two years, and then stayed on until they eventually got acquired by a PE group, and they needed me to stay four days a week, which was impossible to do. So I was up till about 2020, uh, 2021, and the end of that. So retina's kind of been a big focus. My, my role there was really to educate colleagues about some of these applications, and of course, as an optometrist, we have 50 states where you can prescribe oral, so uh, honored to be on the panel. Alan, Alan Franklin. Uh Physician scientist, I have a pretty busy clinical practice in Mobile, Alabama. I'm founder of Forward View Pharma also, which is a company directed at a novel treatment for uh, vascular diseases of the retina and posterior segment. Um, again, we have a novel th therapy, a durable platform, and we're looking for a series A raise. <laughs> Shameless plug, but I told him to do it. <laughs> I, want, I, I wanted him to do that. <laughs> Bob, you can also plug any of your your innovations too, but introduce yourself first and then go for it, man. I'm Bob Bissacool. I'm a retina surgeon too, uh, on the faculty at UCSF uh, for many, many years now, uh, and uh, have had a lot of fun over this time uh, working with uh, some of the companies, especially in the early stage uh, of development and clinical development. Uh, and also, uh, out of UCSF, we have a uh, spin-off startup that is involved in drug delivery called uh, Oculinia. So if the oral therapies really work, it would put our company completely out of business. <laughs> so you know where he's gonna go when I ask him these questions. Now he's That's too great. honest for that. I've known him over 20 years. All right, let's start with a couple of, I wanted to start by exploring clinical trial design and or endpoints, because this is changing now, or we think so. OcuFire's done a great job. They, they may be the first ones, at least that I'm aware of, who's shooting for a binocular endpoint, and it may have happened uh, without necessarily that being their original plan, but they got some positive information in their trial that a three-step change in diabetic retinopathy severity score binocularly, meaning cumulatively between the two eyes, is what's being set from them, and this may be a new paradigm. So I wanna hear from you guys, Paul, maybe you can start how you view this new 
image of a binocular endpoint in a clinical trial, both from a regulatory standpoint and then in your mind in taking care of patients from a clinical standpoint? Thanks for us. You know, actually, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I, you think about systemic drug oral medications, it's, it's not like a topical where you're targeting one eye and, and putting it in there and, of course, using that single eye as an endpoint. You're going to get a systemic effect binocularly. And, of course, uh, because of you know, retinal tissue, it should be pretty comparable between the two. So I think, for me, it makes a lot of sense, both from a primary endpoint but also from just from a logical perspective, I'm trying to you know think about what I'm going to use in patients when I'm going to go with an oral route rather than a than a topical, or whether I refer to a retina specialist like up here for injections. Uh, I'm going to assume that that the topical, if they're applying to both eyes, may have the benefit. But from an oral, it's going to automatically be pretty equally distributed between both eyes, and and therefore I kind of want to see that bilateral outcome as an endpoint. What do you think about? Um and then I want all of you guys to chime in after, but I'll start with Paul. The, uh, the measurement that we're laying out here is a three-step improvement versus uh, worse, uh, protection of worsening, which is what we're hearing. Do you have any thoughts on that, improvement versus the protection against worsening? Well, you know, I think when, I mean, if you look at Panorama and other studies that, that came out, you started seeing, you know, improvements in diabetic retinopathy um, that were of that level of, of two, three steps. Uh, it... it it changed the game in our sense of knowledge of it. It didn't change our, you know, a lot of optometrists would refer a patient into our clinic when I was a retina associate, and then because of either lack of coverage for, for an anti-VEGF injection to try and improve the diabetic retinopathy, the patient would go back, and my colleagues would say, well, you, you didn't do anything. I'm not going to send you any more patients uh, <laughs> for, for a DR indication. So, I, you know, I think... That, though, the point to that is knowing that it has that capability with injections and intravitreal injections, as you all do, that that sets the stage for what we need to or want to accomplish going forward. And I think it'll have a huge impact because if my colleagues are, are referring patients to retina specialists, they do. That's a, very, it's a very good system for allowing that. They're going to want to see some sort of improvement. And, and three-stage, while a little aggressive, does give us that, but we have historic data in those studies, including Panorama, but that suggests that's what we should be looking for. Al, what's your take on this? I mean, I, I think um, <clears throat> in terms of it's, it's great to see reduction of diabetic uh, severity, diabetic retinopathy severity, but at the end of the day, I, uh, you know, I've seen Wiley uh, talk from the podium, you're, you're looking at vision and you're looking at vision-threatening events. And I think ultimately uh, these compounds are going to have to show either long-term protection of vision or long-term protection from visually threatening events. So you think from a regulatory standpoint, the, the binocular, let's say, for example, three-step improvement or three-step protection of worsening won't necessarily be good enough alone from a regulatory standpoint? I think it may be good enough from a regulatory standpoint, but um, when I uh, do surgeries and I have to click on each of my diabetic medicines or my diabetic patients' medicines, and there are like 30 of them, we're going to add another one that really doesn't do anything to improve vision. So, from a regulatory standpoint, it's a mild, it's a, it may be a significant um, um, goal, but. In clinical practice, I don't know how important it is unless you can show, again, protection of vision or uh, reduction of vision-threatening events. 
I'm kind of interested in the latter part of that. Maybe, Bob, I'll, I'll turn to you for this and, and please comment on that. The, the protection against what I refer to as, you know, falling off the cliff, uh, PDR development, uh, significant central DME development, those are ancillary, maybe the most important features, as Alan's uh, implied. What, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, this is, a, uh, I think, a big breakthrough, and Occupier has paved the way for it on this uh, to be a biomarker for upcoming clinical trials. Uh, you know, I don't have any doubt that if you can slow the progression of NPDR, you're going to reduce the uh, incidence of diabetic macular edema and proliferative diabetic retinopathy and vision loss, just as George McGrath has shown us in his, in his talk. Now, it might take five or 10 years before you see that, and so that's not realistic for our clinical trials. So let's not look a gift horse in the mouth. If Wiley Chambers is giving us DRSS, three-step change between the two eyes, and I love the binocularity of a oral medication. That's fantastic. And anybody that's doing, you know, ILEA injection in the right eye this week, two weeks later, ILEA injection in the left eye, yeah. come back again two weeks later, uh, you know that bilateral treatments is, is very heavy. So I think we lose sight that diabetic retinopathy, even in the absence of DME and, and PDR, is, is sickness in the eye. You know, the blood vessels are spilling blood. They're breaking blood vessels in your retina. And we've sort of been blasé about that. But if you can halt that, I think it's a, it doesn't take a big conceptual leap to know that you're also going to halt the blinding aspects of this. It may not show up in a clinical trial that you've changed the vision. Because again, as numerous people have emphasized already today, this is non-invasive and it's preventative, which is where we really want to be in medicine. We don't want to try to come and rescue the eye after the bomb has already gone off. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm glad you referenced the panorama trial. I'm going to come back to that because I think that falling off the cliff data there is pretty impressive and compelling, but I want to revisit that. I want to start, and maybe we'll start on this side. Talk to me about what, what patients ought to be viewed in this treatment paradigm. We know that in, in the panorama trial and other anecdotal uh, data, it's been so-called moderate to severe or severe NPDR. That's who we've been looking at and with some great, very compelling results. How about now? Is this the same people should be looked at here or should we also expand it to mild diabetic retinopathy or moderate diabetic you retinopathy? Know, we're, 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 we're not comparable to panorama when we're talking about an oral drug, especially an oral drug that's safe. So I don't think the same threshold and the same standard applies when I no longer have to talk about putting a needle in the eye every month. Uh, you know, here's an example. We have a good, you know, a good drug for oral therapy for retinal disease. A red's vitamin supplement for macular regeneration, okay? And why not start every patient who has some level of dry AMD on the AREDS vitamin. Well, I think it might be the same for diabetic retinopathy. Mild non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, sure, throw it on if it's safe. And you know, maybe that's done for everybody, and it's not even done by the retina specialist. Maybe it's done by the general ophthalmologist or the optometrist or you know, by their primary doctor. And you know, that could have a huge population effect in terms of keeping people out of my office. <laughs> Great, uh, great end result there. I know too many injections. We we're all feeling that. Alan and Paul, either of you, why don't you chime in here? What, who would you consider using this for? Who do you think 
is a must-do, maybe, as Bob's saying, it's all of them. What, what do you think? I, I think, I think uh, Bob you know, hit the nail on the head. I think safety is, is critical in all this. And if these compounds are safe, um, on the positive end, you know, the, the uh, kidney um, vasculature, this may respond as well as we saw in one of the presentations on the potential negative end. Um, for the heart, uh, VEGF is actually increased as uh, the as there's blockage of vessels. So, you just we just have to be really careful and have to ensure these compounds are safe. But if they're safe, you know why wouldn't you use it earlier? Paul, what do you think? You know I have to agree agree with Alan, and I I think Bob did hit it on the nail on the head because if you think about um, you know. The, the sooner you can get to less invasive. Like, I really think the reason why we don't see a lot of injections for uh, DR, not, not DME, of course, or, or anything falling off a cliff, is, is simply, it's not just the coverage. It also seems like, hey, the risk-reward of injecting when we're doing so many of them, you know, do, do we need to do that? We, that's why we're not seeing a high percentage of it. So that tells me that uh, Bob and Alan are right, that the, the positioning for this is going to be in the, in the earlier stages, perhaps when you're starting to see some diabetic retinopathy and hoping to get you know some slowdown or some change. I think it, by the time they're already experiencing DME or progressing towards PDR, I, I, it's time to send the patient, obviously, over to the retina specialist. But then this gives us an opportunity prior to that to perhaps do similar to what ERITS2 can do in slowing this down. It doesn't stop us by any means from eventually getting a patient who's wet over to the retina specialist or, or a patient who may need GA therapy if they've progressed to that point. But it, it certainly has a role, and it, and it fits in to the ideal patients where they're studied, which is your intermediate stage and above. And I think that's where this would fit in, provided, as Alan said, we're, we're getting you know potential other effects, and we're not seeing any detrimental side effects or any significant side effects based on an oral medication, which is obviously going to be higher than topical. So, so I'm in agreement. Great. I am, too. I think the whole point of this is don't let them go to, towards the edge of the cliff. Makes perfect sense, which for those of you out here developing oral drugs, uh, that gives you the answer. It's just a gigantic marketplace of patients, enormous, and I think these companies are aware of that. One final point or question with regard to the clinical trial differences now. With dry AMD, we now have a, a model for uh, clinical trial outcomes with two companies reaching approval with GA. How does this impact that? Are we going to get a new set of parameters for bilateral endpoints with oral drugs? Bob, you want to start? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, your question gets to the underlying point that all the clinical trials we've done in the past 15 years have been based on the VEGF model, and we all have the, the VEGF mind virus that we think that trials have to be conducted uh, with that OCT thickness and, and uh, vision change and visits every month. So here, with an oral drug intervening at an earlier stage, maybe we will start looking at a patient population that doesn't have DME, you know, that just has bilateral NPDR, and you can look at the effects there. Uh, uh, maybe we can, we can uh, start looking at, uh, uh, you know, not monthly visits in a clinical trial, but you know, see the patient the first month to make sure there's no bad effects, check back in with them six months later, and then endpoint at a year or at a year and a half uh, uh, makes it a much more tenable cost because we don't need to bring them in to do injections. I agree. Any other thoughts, either of you guys? Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, 
it's really encouraging to see both uh, less invasive therapies and then the multitude of therapies for uh, dry AMD, the uh, presentation from Inflamix, I'm sorry we missed today yeah. because I think that's a, a great target and we saw, we've seen actually more different targets for dry AMD than we have for, for wet AMD over the past couple of days, which I think is great for, for progress of the field. I'm glad you brought up targets and I want to start with Paul on this because I, these were all unlike the VEGF era, <laughs> maybe we're entering into an era, pretty disparate mecha mechanisms of action, and there are more out there that we didn't hear from yet today. Um, any particular mechanism sound appealing to you, Paul? I mean, we don't have a lot of framework for this yet, but these were all fascinating scientific programs. You know, to me, a couple things. One, I'll, I'll finish with the, with the question prior real quickly, too, on the kind of the endpoints, then get into that, because I think... Well, covered really, really well. I think one of the big things, um, and I think Bob said this, we, we have kind of an ARIDS2 formulation, which essentially does slow progression. You know, we've seen that clinically. It, it does extremely well on the market and uh, commonly prescribed by uh, everyone, ophthalmologists, retina specialists, and certainly a general ophthalmologist. And I think that, but what, what amazes me about that whole GA category and, and why I don't think we may necessarily, why we, so there's two parts to it. One, since we've been using things like ARIDS, we're very familiar with an early start. And, and to a fault, sometimes clinicians even use ARIDS-2 formulations prior to when they should, prior to intermediate. But they're so comfortable with it that it becomes, hey, I can begin here. So an oral that can achieve that will, will always have a place. But I don't see how it can necessarily, it could, but based on the mechanisms, this goes into your second question, I'm not sure that it can really prevent perhaps some of the slowing down of maybe of some of the devitalized cells in the RPE layer, because we're seeing that also with the injections of the complement system type drugs. We're seeing that. But the big hope in that category is actually the next wave. It's, it's, the, it's the layer outside of that, the RPE that's still healthy. You know, what do we do to that? Do, do we halt it because we're not, they're not devitalized? Like, I can understand how the complement system can help with the, if it's already atrophied, can't do anything about that. If it's devitalized RPE cells, I see the slowing effects by the data that we've seen from both drugs. The real key is what's outside of that. What does it do to the tissue that's healthy? Are we able to actually halt it if we can look at five-year data, seven-year data, 10-year data? And that's really what makes that whole category exciting. So on the, on the AMD side, while I do think there's a place, obviously there's no downside to using ARDS2, probably no downside to using orals. You don't want to get to the point where you've let it go too far that you can't help those devitalized cells where we're still sending them to a retina specialist. So that becomes a very different paradigm. And where does it fit in? And when do we have the cutoff? We don't have enough data yet to figure that out. But that's the way I think we have to be thinking. And on the diabetic side, I think it's a little easier. The, the mechanisms that, and I think Alan covered this really well, that may have other benefits uh, systemically because it's an oral pill, maybe on kidney function, as we saw in, in the presentations and other categories, make that an extremely appealing approach as well. But anything that can slow down retinopathy, that can prevent more injections, that um, can really prevent this, you know, so you said frost falling off the cliff, are going to have a place. But on the AMD side, I think we got to really figure out when do we do that shift so we don't lose too many cells before we have to do a potential injection to slow it down. Alan, you kind of expert in some of these mechanisms in the past. You've taught me a few things. What, what's your take on some of these mechanisms? I, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's great. I think that... Um, we'll have an evolution in our field. Uh, when you look at our colleagues who are oncologists, they have induction therapy and maintenance therapy. They have intravenous stuff, local stuff, oral stuff. I think we're, we're a 
evolving in that same pathway and it's not gonna be like, well, there's fluid, you need a shot. There's no fluid, come back and see me in a couple weeks. I mean, that's not, that's not all that intellectually that stimulating. They'll stop paying us even worse than they do now. Yeah. <laughs> it is that simple though. <laughs> Bob, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's, it, it, it speaks to something that these oral drugs, almost by definition, will have to use a different MOA than VEGF. And Praveen Dugal talked to it this morning in that great talk. Uh, you know, my entire career, which is now pretty long, has been VEGF and then nothing else. More VEGF. More nothing steroids. else. Steroids. So for 20 years, we haven't had anything move beyond VEGF. Steroids was, were always around, and yes, they're good drugs. But I think it's very exciting now that you know maybe we will have this next mechanism of action that we can apply for our patients. We have the complement inhibitors now. I, I, you know, they have their limitations. It might not be the miracle drug that VEGF was, but I think it's still a major breakthrough. And so we're looking for some of these other MOAs to, to help patients. And I agree. I see a little bit to Bob's point real quickly. I know we're, we're going to wrap it up no, here for okay. us. But you know, you, you know, you think about most invasive, you think about infusions, you know, where people have to go in for an hour, two hours, and yet Tepez is a billion-dollar drug, you know, so it does well. They say that if there were injections or orals, orals are coming, you're going to see a lot of cannibalization of that area, as long as it's not that intermediary, which we're describing right now. And then ultimately topicals when we're talking about what we're doing. We have to continue to look at those become less and less invasive. And if you are able to show efficacy or slowing, or as you said so well, that transitional, that prior to getting to the retina specialist, the less invasive, the more likely uh, doctors are gonna be to, to utilize it. And orals will be that first bridge. Topicals will eventually probably even be beyond that. So we wanna continue to look at the entire pipeline where things are going, and we'll learn more as we get availability to these drugs. Yeah, I agree. We're looking more and more like immuno-oncology with the various concoctions and combinations. I had a lot more stuff for these guys, but we're out of time, so I'm gonna ask you to stay for a minute afterwards. I have a quick announcement or two, uh, but in the meantime, please uh, help me thank these guys for their time. Thank you.